Hey friends, we're back. It's the Oddly Observant Podcast. I'm so glad that y'all made it back for another week. I have a pretty entertaining episode coming up today. We're going to talk about everything from philosophy to math to just everyday life. I think y'all are going to really like my guest today. He is Will Cotton. How's it going, man? Not so bad, Pete. How about you? Good. I'm so glad that you made it to the podcast today. I know this is your first podcast that you have ever recorded, right? Yeah, man. Happy to be here. I'll start it off real simple. So everybody on the podcast, present and in the future, can get to know you. For everybody uh, unaware, this is my friend, Will Cotton. We met at UTD through a mutual friend that you may have heard on the podcast, Cameron Aziz. And kind of our, our friendships really flourished through intellectual curiosity and honestly, the depth of emotion, which is really cool because we've been able to connect on multiple levels rather than just logic and reason. But Will is very, very, very smart, guys. He's so talented with his ability to abstract that it's almost hard for me sometimes to keep up and I feel like I try to do a decent job of understanding math, but not only is Will good at math, he's a great person. He would help anybody when they needed it. And I've seen it firsthand, but you're making me blush, Peter. Hey man, I gotta, I gotta tell him how it is, but that's a little bit of background for Will y'all and y'all are going to see a lot more of it once we get into this show. But you know, Will, I have one question that comes at the top of my mind to start off is what are you doing right now? Where, what are you going to school or where did you go to school and explain to people the schooling route now that you've taken? Yeah. So, um, so I started at, uh, UT Dallas. I graduated there in 2015, uh, got a degree in math. Um, and that was fine. And I, I planned on transitioning to philosophy, as you know, I was in the philosophy program for a semester, but it turns out there's not a lot of money in philosophy. It <laughs> might surprise you. Um, so I spent a couple of years trying to figure out what I'm doing and now I'm at Lambda School, which is, uh, an online coding fellowship. So I'm studying data science right now. Uh, it's quite a lot of fun. Uh, <laughs> I, I imagine we'll, we'll spend some time talking. About oh yeah, that. I'm sure. And I, I want to hop right into it because in a previous podcast with Stasi Harris, if y'all listened, we talked about how the formal university setting, like there will always be a higher education. But the formal university may not always be the form of that higher education. And who more perfect to po- talk about this than with you, somebody that's gone through Lambda School. And really, if you are on Twitter or Facebook, you see the highlights of Lambda School. You see the instructors doing good and doing by doing well for people. So give us a little bit more experience or sorry, insight on your experiences in the past like year with Lambda School. Yeah, so the the highlight i think is that it's the best educational experience i've ever had so that's that's saying quite a lot i mean i've been through university uh did well in university but i wouldn't characterize it as uh particularly 
there's some problems with the university that we can. I think we, we can, can agree on. Yeah, that. I think we can. Uh, we can all think of a few. Um, maybe we'll talk about that later. But Lambda School, it's, it's quite interesting. So first of all, the the quality of instruction is all there. Um, the structure makes sense, mm-hmm. which is something that you can't say for. Yeah. For so I, you know, we talked about a little bit outside the podcast. Give me or give the audience a little bit more insight on the structure and how the idea of like job placement and all that stuff works with Lambda School that really differentiates it from the typical college system. Yeah. So the big deal with Lambda School is the the income share agreement. So the idea is that they're training you in this program for nine months. It's a full time program. And then at the end of the program, when you graduate, if you don't get a job making at least 50K, you owe them nothing. And if you do get a job making 50K, you owe them 17% of your income for the first two years. And then uh, it's capped at at 30K. So there's no paying more than that if you get a really great job. So the 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 phrase is that the incentives are aligned, right? <laughs> I was you, literally just about to say you that. Can finish my sentence for me. Um, and so it's it, there's a lot of hype there. Um, but I'm a, a pretty generally cynical person and skeptical of a lot of things. If you know me, that's not a surprise to you. Uh, but I've I've drunk the Kool Aid, as it were. I'm I'm fully on board. I'm I'm actually quite optimistic. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because we both have, and, you know, on a personal level, this would probably be safe for another podcast, but we both had very, very interesting university experiences that, you know, we can look back at and we could maybe look at fondly now, but there were certain hardships and when the present was there and in the past, sorry but if that's confusing, but in the past it was, you know, not always as easy to look back on it fondly, but I think with Lambda School, at least in my, you know, after working with technology and for Tuner Inc. and Brassroots, I've been seeing that there's so many inefficiency in the way information is distributed. Mm-hmm. And the internet is like this information superhighway. And it hasn't been fully integrated into the college system. And it's crazy to me because I think these top universities would be differentiating themselves financially and their brand by. Mm-hmm offering the top tier education with the most information and the most pertinent information coming in. And I think at least from my limited knowledge of Lambda School, it's that that they force you to naturally problem solve rather than we're in college, the formal college setting where it's, hey, I need you to do this for this reason, for this test, for this and that. And it's hard to pull in like a long term vision sometimes. And like, I guess I would love for you to talk about that because you've talked about that with Lambda. You see, like, you can see a future. Whereas with UTD, it was always kind of. It, it wasn't that there was no future. It was just muddied. It was hard to see. Right. So that's a. That's a. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the the thing about UTD. Uh, this was my experience with UTD. Is that that's uh, it's a good point. It was muddied. Yeah. So I there's this clear distinction between my time at UTD and then my time afterward. And during that time when I was at, at university, part of this was, of course, because I was very young uh, <laughs> and a little stupid and not <laughs> somewhat naive, perhaps, um, is not being able to see beyond that graduation date and not knowing what's coming after, not knowing really anything about the, the real world. Whereas with Lambda School, the of course, there's a clear barrier between being in Lambda School and having an actual full-time job. But the day-to-day of Lambda School is 100% focused on preparing me for the day-to-day 
of actually having a full-time job. Rather than the next test. Right, rather than the day-to-day of being a student yeah. for, for another semester, which is really all I, I felt prepared to do graduating from UT Dallas. So so I don't want to, you know, to, to rag on UT Dallas too yeah. much. Uh, there were certainly good parts of it and, and certainly things that, that Lambda School can't exactly provide mm-hmm. um, given the model, but it seems... It seems inevitable in retrospect that that something like this would come about because, you know, you, you have these what I've referred to as like labor leakages. So there's all these people who have the ability to become, for example, web developers or data scientists, but who don't have the opportunity to go into the traditional system and learn the skills. They don't have the money, they don't have the time, all kinds of barriers to entry in that respect. And so what Lambda School has done is they've they've capitalized on that and enabled a lot of people who would not have become developers to become developers and i include myself in that i don't know that i would have uh that i would have followed this path i'm I'm quite glad that i'm here now and i you know it's fascinating to hear that and just to give our audience because you know they don't know our our relationship as well as we do obviously but i just want the audience to know that it's a distinct difference that i can tell and will from when we first met and we're first becoming friends and because I knew how smart this guy was from the second I met him, I knew like we were hitting off as like you could talk for days because we could just go on and on about philosophy, math, whatever. But there's a noticeable difference now in the energy that you have and whether it's like directly Lambda school or UTD or whatever, it that energy is real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, causality is not always the reason. But in this, there's a there's a high correlation here mm-hmm. and it's really exciting to see. And it makes me really happy because you know you have your situation but then I think of someone you know like certain family members of mine that were really smart but didn't have the opportunity when they were younger and obviously you know the internet wasn't around as like as great as it is now but you know if you're thinking about like how much this can help people on the family level the local level being able to have access to information and Mm -hmm. the ability to evolve that information Mm -hmm. and that that's quote-unquote learning Right. In my book. So yeah. you're evolving information you have and trying to take in new information, present new conclusions or modes of action, whatever. But, you know, we've talked a little bit about this Lambda school and I'm sure we'll we'll revisit and circle back in. But let's transition a little bit away from this. And, you know, you mentioned philosophy. So let's talk about the idea of metaphysical. I know that can mean totally different things to totally different people. So do you have a good uh, quote-unquote definition that people could go by from, like, what is metaphysical in philosophy and how it's all intertwined? Yeah. yeah. Um, let me think about that for a second. So I think of the metaphysical, the, the metaphysics as a project generally is thinking about the underlying structure of reality. So going beyond the physical, going into some kind of deeper structure beneath all that. Or deeper in the construct. Yeah, or, or perhaps above it, depending on your your interpretation. Your bent. Yeah. So, um, what do you think about metaphysics? Metaphysics. Yeah, I. It's weird to allude back to a personal experience I had today. You know, me and Cameron, which work for Tuner Inc., were trying to uh, gather a new client, and literally, I say to Cameron, "We need one of those serendipitous." people to just call us out of the blue we've put in a lot of hard work you know we've set up the systems to get people coming inbound but I spoke this into existence right I spoke this 
hey, it would be nice if we had a serendipitous client come to us. And an hour later, Cameron just happens to get a call that was from a serendipitous yeah. thing that we had done nine months ago that we had totally forgot about that came back. And not more like what I'm trying to hone in on on the metaphysical of this situation is really the theme of speaking things into existence and how intent can manifest energy. Literally, in, intent, like if you have good intent, you can manifest energy and then wield it to your own device, which is a fascinating idea of the universe or the metaphysical philosophy, whichever you want to yeah. categorize it in. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, I come from a, a little bit of a different perspective, but I'll try to tie it back into what you're describing. Mm -hmm. So if you'll if you'll indulge me for a minute here. So I think about this uh, metaphysics as a project uh, is kind of having lost a lot of steam at the beginning of the the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. So with Nietzsche, for example, this whole project of of kind of not completely doing away with metaphysics, but uh, relegating it to a somewhat lower status in the sense that there's no there's no true higher meaning or, or underlying meaning that it's constructed uh, fundamentally. And then you have someone like Heidegger who, who's essentially trying to do the same thing. But fundamentally, what we come back to is there's always an implicit metaphysics in the way that we approach the world. Whether or not we think that's true intellectually, uh, we nevertheless act in, in a way that suggests an implied metaphysical uh, sense of, of the way things are. So a narrative, right? Yeah. Just like you're describing that this idea of bringing things into existence by thinking about them. Well, in a sense, that's the whole story of our mm -hmm. minds. Yeah. The entire inner life is all about exactly this question of thinking things into existence. And so I think about this in the Buddhist context, for example, that all of the, the suffering that we have in our lives comes from this, this cycle of desire, satisfaction, desire, satisfaction, and so forth. And the thing that I think the Buddhist insight is that the, the satisfaction is never really satisfying, that it's, it's always turns out to be a desire for yet more desire. So, Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting, you know, wheel if you want to call it that but on another sense to tie it I know this is a tangent but the idea of archetypes and how that connects to the metaphysical because it's weird that you know all of us humans there's archetypal personalities or traits that we take on that play into our everyday life for example to make this understandable for the audience is the mother archetype it doesn't necessarily have to be a mother, like someone's like bred you out of them, but the mother, the warm, the loving, or the father, that's, you know, the father archetype, however you want to define it. But there's these really different archetypes within our own mind that continue to play out in the world. And I, I, I start to question, I mean, I'll pose this question to you, is are we projecting that onto the universe or is it embedded within the like code of the universe? Mm -hmm where this is really like a, a underlying fact rather than just a projection? Well, I'm pretty skeptical of underlying facts in general. Uh, so I think about archetypes in the sense of they're kind of an interface between the culture and the individual. So there's this idea of the, the mother in culture, and you've, you've outlined one, one way to look at it, of that the mother is caring and takes care of someone. But if you look at something like psychoanalysis where 
you you look at the the development of the mind through for example traumatic experiences that can be very different so if you had an abusive parent for example an abusive father then your conception of father might be very different than that of the underlying mm-hmm. culture and can that can that create a underlying you know that situation sucks and it's terrible for i feel so bad for anybody that has to go through that but can that misalignment of like the cultural archetype and the personal archetype like say i had that abusive relationship and my idea of a mother is totally different than society's view of a mother can that create real frictions in the real world that manifest you know not just in the present but into the future oh yeah absolutely i think that's the that's the origin of a lot of neurosis is this kind of double consciousness where you have this expectation that someone's going to fill a certain kind of role and then reality sets in and maybe this is maybe there's there's a the the temporality of this is reversed that that you have this experience of someone and then as you grow into the culture and you become acclimated to this kind of underlying sense of what that archetype is supposed to be and there's a conflict there that's stressful that's really hard to deal with uh that's in a sense traumatic i don't i don't necessarily like that word for that experience it could be maddening in a way yeah it's it's quite uh again it's a double consciousness there's a sense of cognitive dissonance there where you have this experiential sense of what that archetype means and then you have this sense of what the culture expects you to think about that mm-hmm. that particular yeah event. and i know this isn't directly related but it does in my mind bring up interesting things because as a society i find that you know you're speaking of reality and like the projection in a, in a way is that what we perceive to be obviously can be way different from what actually is so i wonder that how much of our like when you break it down in the local think group think and then like if you want to go even higher like nationalistic think or whatever people have these different areas of think those projections or those ideas of what an archetype or a figure is supposed to be can bleed over. And really, uh, maybe I'm not saying this clearly, I'm sorry guys, but the, you, it can really make life hard for anybody. And it's hard to recover after that because the it's like version control in a computer. It's like some the society's version is almost two steps ahead of where your like idea or projection could be and they could be totally misaligned which then causes you to be living in a totally different world from other people and to get back to the local the group think is these like fake realities can influence the local think which is totally different set of mind from the group think because like that difference between the reality and the projection can mean the difference in a you helping your neighbor or you not because you don't like their political affiliation right but they're your neighbor first and then as you go up the chain, like you get farther removed from the individualist thing, it becomes right. easier to like push your perception of reality on them. And right. I know I said right. that very, very poorly and I muddled my words a lot, no, but no, do you, I, I think you kind of get the area where I'm going for, for this. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, to, to kind of add on that a little bit further in the, in the Buddhist direction, for example, I think the the insight there is that there's no true reality underneath all of this, so that we tell these stories, but that's really all there is, is the stories, so that we come back to, for example, you gave this example of uh, the neighbor, and they have different political affiliations, and they have all these different qualities and these characteristics, 
and the story that we tell about them. But all of those are some combination of received from culture and from our own genetics, from our genetics, from our own mental landscape. Mm -hmm. So the idea that that it's the fake realities, I think that's quite correct as long as that's coupled with the insight that there's no such thing as a real reality yeah. and underlying it. It's a Nietzschean insight as well that that we can, we're just masks, that we can't actually get down to a, some, some sense of true self um, or to the extent that there is a true self. It's it's atomic and it's not, uh, it's, it's not something, it's not what we think of as the self. Yeah. It's, it's quite different. The And I, phew, that, the idea of it, being atomic is what I was on the tip of my mind is I don't think like we were not ready for the self. Sometimes the self can be, and when, sorry guys for, to break it down. When I'm talking about the self, I'm just like specifically talking about the difference between the ego, the self and the ego being the projections, what we believe, what is reality and the self being what in a way to you truly is, is not, is like a, it's not a fact to the universe, but it is your fact and you, inside your mind. And I think the self is so uh, blanketed with these cultural experiences and external stimuli that it's almost impossible to truly look at the self in a mirror, like see the self. But like you said, I think it would be atomic because I don't think we're ready to see the full essence of yourself. But I don't think that that means that we won't get there eventually, because I think as a species and going along a Darwinian thing, <clears throat> species got to evolve. Mm-hmm. And if we're if these thoughts are coming out of our, you know, from the electrical signals and getting all the way through our head and out of our mouth onto this podcast about this stuff, it really gets me to thinking, like, is this the earliest days? And will we start to shed our ego slightly over the course of a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand years as a species, and the self starts becoming more important, almost as in the human has transcended in its species. I think it's a real possibility or like a, a metaphysical theme you could pick up on mm-hmm. in the future. But again, these things take a long time. But right. it's weird that there's a lot of conversation. Maybe the internet causes this, but there's a lot of conversation around this now. And people are realizing the distinct you know, differences between the ego and how to use the ego effectively and realize that it is there, but it's not everything. You are deeper than that. Everybody is deeper than that, whether they have experienced it or realized it or not. Mm. It's true. Mm. Like, and true in, you know, the sense, like, right. yeah, the quote unquote true, because, you know, what is true or right. reality, but. So that's very interesting. So you think it's a, it's possible to, to evolve as a species in this direction? I think it's weird that our brains, which are, taking in all these signals from the external stimulus and our genetics are causing us to talk about this and our brain and <laughs> spine is the 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 vehicle for evolution uh-huh. primarily in the human and we are the brain and spine saying these things and sitting here and it's making me wonder it's like yeah maybe we're just lifting the veil mm-hmm. but once that veil is fully lifted you allow for a transcendence and that won't be the last stop in the human evolution but it could be in the you know far future. It's something I see happening because I see people becoming way more aware of the ego and the self. And I think, you know, as a side fact, I think more people now are meditating more than ever. So maybe it's not such, or maybe not more than ever, but in recent years. And it, it's kind of weird that these thoughts start to percolate and bubble up right as people start to 
hit these new trends and mindfulness becomes popular again and you know really sitting down and thinking has gained more respect than the hustle bustle is like people are starting to look within a little bit and what I like to say you know the podcast is oddly observant one thing I've been observing is that people are like as a species we're slowly waking up in a way uh-huh. and you can attribute that to the internet or whatever but I, I really think in a in a short-term fashion and a long-term fashion I think we're about to transcend and I don't know what that means or what that looks like in a positive or negative because there's always a positive or negative but I do think as like the human I think we're about to transcend into something else in the next 10,000 years so do you mean that in a cultural spiritual sense or in a technological sense or both or yes so I, actually I, I mean it in all of it but I also mean it in a biological sense too where I feel like our synapses <clears throat> might physically change to allow ourself to come through this gateway of perception more and yeah. implant itself into the quote-unquote reality that we experience if it is or not because now it would be a different reality right. now that the the self is the primary driver rather than the ego. Yeah. But, you know, just to make this, I don't want to go on too long, but I have a very pertinent example for this. And somebody that I really, not look, well, I don't look up to him, but it's an interesting story. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> he had some he had some really rough moments in his life. Uh-huh. But Mike Tyson, uh-huh. cra- he, animal, crazy. The biggest, 18, he's the heavyweight fighter champion of the world. It was all about ego. He literally got hypnotized by his trainer Gut or cuss, but he wanted to because he wanted to be the best, right? Uh-huh. He wanted to be hypnotized. And they're telling him, You are your mission. You are the ego. You can do this and only this. You are a master of this. He uh-huh. swings left, you'll swing right. He, you will knock him down. Uh-huh. Inflating the ego. But after Mike Tyson has stepped away from fighting and gotten away from his arguably scandalous life mm-hmm. and into more normal role, he's running a podcast now, one of the most popular podcasts in the world, actually. Hotboxing with Mike Tyson is the name of it. And he talks about it all the time. And you see it that his ego, it made him who he was, this giant monster, this beast, this the greatest champion of the world. And it also brought him right back down, uh-huh. back to square zero to nothing. It's not until he reached into him, the self, not himself, the self, uh-huh. and was able to realign. And he says specifically it helped him start this podcast and get excited about life again and it's just weird it's like he on he had to go through the ego to make it to the self mm-hmm. and going through the ego is not easy there's a lot yeah. of ups and downs yeah that's a that's a light way to put it i guess i, I mean but you you touched on an interesting point because when you delve so deeply into the ego you tend to shut other things out and so then that sometimes leads to you treating other people very badly as mike tyson has mm-hmm uh, so do you think this is, uh, and you, you talked about this evolution of the human species, do you, what role do you see AI playing in that? Yeah, uh, first I want to preface that with, again, I don't support anything Mike Tyson's done, and I realize how controversial he can be, but it, I, it, I thought it was a good example to use yeah. as a, a fighter. But yeah. your question about AI is, first off, I think AI is a little bit, True AI is about 20 years off. I think what we're being pushed as AI is really just really uh, intriguing if else statements, basically. So, I mean, but in the future, 
on a thematic sense, I think AI will change pretty much every aspect of the infrastructure of our country and honestly the world. And the first thought that comes to mind is that people are going to, or they won't be put out of work, but the work will change. And if work changes at a, at a rate of change too quickly, Mm -hmm. then people will lose their jobs and will lose work. And that's like my main issue right now is that I'm a technologist. I want to see all these amazing things AI can do. But having lived through the uh, genesis of Facebook, Twitter, I see that some of these that look so great at the facade can really be negative as you dig the layers a little deeper. But what do you have to add on that? So on the point of where we are right now with AI, the the idea that it's it's really just complicated if else, I think that's fair. But you have to also recognize that we are also just complicated if else statements. We just mm-hmm. don't understand our, yeah. our... So if you're a physical determinist, for example, uh, the the events of your body are, are determined in that sense, and it's following some rules. You could imagine them as if else rules. We don't know what the rules are. We might not be capable of understanding the rules or, or codifying them, but nevertheless, there's still rules uh, that we follow. So there's, there's a question of free will in there that maybe is not exactly relevant to AI, but we can put a pen in and discuss later if you want. No, I actually, actually, I think it's a, a perfect segue into that because I think AI and free will in the next 20, 30 years are going to become intertwined. Mm-hmm. Because, for example, if I don't, if the AI knows what I need to do before I want to do it, and it's a 99.9% probability that <laughs> that will be good, Yeah. any rational human would take that. But then you're, you're allowing the AI to carve your actions in the universe rather than you yourself carving your pathway into the universe. But, yeah. but I will say that I think we're also, or most people are not aware to the fact that most of our thoughts, the origin thought, really aren't our own anymore. Mm-hmm. You go on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, you're mindlessly scrolling and then you fall asleep and then you have an idea tomorrow. Well, I don't think that idea, and not to say that it always fundamentally came from inside you, but it's so easy nowadays to have your original idea be someone else's or be influenced and pulled by other actors. And, you know, we can go on a political side, you could say that, you know, Russia scandal and how it was affecting people's psyche, or you can look at Facebooks and the way they specifically built their app Mm -hmm. and how it really does change the psyche within a human and it incentivizes some of the worst parts of the psyche or qu- worst parts, if you want to call them worse, but I think they're the worst of, you know, greediness and having your whole self-worth be on, uh, related to someone else, you know, mm-hmm. but what do you think about free will and what kind what philosophies do you not quote unquote believe in, but which philosophies of free will do you think have a lot of value for the everyday person? So, I guess I could start talking about this relative to what you were talking about with this idea of influence, which I think is crucial to understanding the, the problem of free will to begin with. So when we think about ideas, for example, when you make a choice, there's this sense that it was freely chosen, this feeling that we have that we kind of instinctually have maybe, or maybe it's a culturally determined thing and, and uh, other other ways of, of developing as a culture would, would lead to other ways of thinking about it. But regardless, 
there's this kind of widespread belief that when you make a choice, there's a sense of a self making that choice, which I think is a mistake. Biological? Would you say mostly in nature, that choice? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you have like, you have some set of uh, hormonal responses to certain things. To and, stimulus in the environment and within. Yeah. And you can make, you can, you can make rational choices. I don't want to say you, you can't make rational choices. But the point is that it's not exactly you making those choices. It's this sort of cascade of, of hormone responses and the neural synapses firing. I don't have a strong <laughs> neuroscience background, but, but that's the idea here is that fundamentally no ideas are really your own because they're composed of yeah these kinds of physical events. Yeah, and, you know, I've talked about... You know, we talked about this outside the podcast and I've talked about it with other friends. Personally, the way I like to approach it is I kind of realize that I realize these things and I'm like, okay, I'm not in full control. But at the same time, like most things in the universe that are inherently miraculous or like beautiful, if you want to say that, is they're a paradox. So it's like mm-hmm. the thing that you have no free will in a weird way, like at the same time, I can take those rule sets learn how I like am adapting to them and how I'm experiencing it mm-hmm. and alter the experience. Maybe it's not the fundamental, you know, on the neural level, I had the free will to choose off or on for a transistor or synapse, mm-hmm. but I took the experience I was experiencing and I was able to implant it and project it on the world because projection can be reality. Mm-hmm. And in a bad sense on, on the negative side of this is we see it sometimes in politics where they, politicians project who they are falsely yeah and then once you find out who they really are it's like oh okay that's not who i voted for right it's not where i want the country to go etc so i don't know it's it's a it's a slippery slope for sure yeah on the subject of politics you think about free will in the context of a criminal justice system that's predicated on it's founded on punishment rather than rehabilitation we think about that in the context of people who we have this model of how people are that people make choices when in reality they're shaped by so many different factors in their own lives by again at, at a fundamental level it's it's biological response to a system so i think the model of again of thinking of criminal justice as punishment is really misguided yeah. to say the least i in my first the very first thing i go to is the idea of private prisons yeah. being a i would say a financial connoisseur it really makes me wonder why these private uh private prisons exist but then i think oh it's the money it literally it, yeah and you can't take it down to any farther level for private prisons specifically other than the money right and the wealth that it brings the employees and their families mm-hmm. by proxy and i don't legal way to 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 carry on slavery yeah and in a in a very uh almost sly fashion mm-hmm. where it's like no one wants to tell you that this is indentured servitude but it is in a way these right. they're forcing people to work at these private prisons and these private prisons are getting value out of that work mm-hmm. and exploiting that work and i think that's one of the fundamental things i'd like to see out of the 2020 election regardless of which side wins or whatever rhetoric gets thrown left and right i'd like to see whoever wins 
challenge the idea of private prisons. And I think that's a lot more likely on one side than the other. Mm -hmm. But regardless, it needs to be addressed. And whether that's through the Congress, the Senate, uh, the people, or a president. Right. I think that would be a very important thing to take care of very soon so we can advance and unlock the full potential of all our citizens, not just the ones that people in suits deem well or good. Right. Now, I think it's it's interesting that you bring this up because uh, criminal justice is one of the few things that I think there's some reason to be mildly optimistic for because they, they passed this act, I think it was in December, the First Step Act, uh, that had some, some bipartisan support that I don't have the details available, but it was... Aimed at exactly this this question. Uh, of course, it is a first step, and there's need there's more that needs to be done. Uh, but but that's something that we can take heart in in this time of very few things that we can take heart in. Yeah, and you know, also I would say, you know, it's so easy and it's a human nature to magnify the negative and minimize the positive, mm-hmm. and to make this tie into finance. It's very weird how if you look at a chart or you're looking at the financials, uh, stock market, for example, on the way up, things move a lot more slowly mm-hmm. when stuff is orderly. Mm-hmm. It moves very slow. It chomps up. You know, Maybe the market goes up 9% in a year. But when the market drops, the velocity or the rate of change downward is staggering. Mm-hmm. Fear feeds on itself. Yeah. And that's why I think it's, it proliferates in our society. So I, I always try to be cognizant of that and think of the positive like the, the other side because the negative side will bring you down quicker than the positive side will take you up. But in building good habits and as a country building like good laws and good uh, people that can I- implement those laws and then a- other good people to say, hey, these don't work anymore. We need to change it or we need to get rid of it. Constantly evolving. That's what we need. That's what we need in a society. And more or less, we need that undying willingness to learn and be open to new information coming in and the effects of the old information. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think it's, it may be a generational thing, but I think we're scratching the surface. And I think, you know, it's, it's not idealistic to say that we're slowly, slowly working towards that. I think it's happening. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really good insight. I mean, you, so you're reminding me of, we talked last time, I think, about Nassim Taleb. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll just briefly summarize how I see his work. I, I think of him as one of the few people today that I would consider a philosopher in the traditional sense. There, there's some, of course, there are academic philosophers out there, but I'll, I won't talk about them right now. <laughs> um, but I think of him as kind of a third-rate Nietzsche, which maybe sounds like an insult or a backhanded compliment, but that's actually quite high praise for me because I considered Nietzsche one of my primary intellectual influences. But he, he thinks of things in, in a kind of system. So he has he has this idea, what he, he became prominent for was this idea of the black swan event. That's In finance, that's like the, the credit crisis of 08 exactly. and the housing market of 08 yeah. that came out of nowhere, the black swan. Right. So he has this idea and he, he was, you know, he predicted this and he, that's one of the reasons that he became so prominent because he, he saw it ahead of time. But the, the features of the black swan are that they're unpredictable ahead of time for most people, <laughs> except for Nassim Taleb, apparently, <laughs> that they have uh, large, large effects, that they they completely swamp any effects in the other direction. 
and he, he says so you have negative black swans like the the financial crisis but there are also positive black swans like the internet there. like the internet for example right there's no way to predict how, how big it is that's the the great that's a great example and and then if you think about the internet again relative to the input costs of creating the internet relative to the research costs the amount of growth that that's produced on an economic level is staggering it completely swamps any investment that we would have made in it so that's his that's his core i would say there's there's a little bit more to it that there's there's this strong emphasis on randomness but what i'm thinking of in in response to what you're saying here is his his book anti-fragile which i am a big shill for uh which which he has this idea that systems can be either fragile which means when random events like black swans come about they they tend to become weaker uh they tend to become weaker with disorder more generally they can be robust so they don't respond they don't become stronger or weaker in in the face of random disordered events or they can be anti-fragile where when random events happen they become even stronger so uh there's a lot to this and i i I strongly recommend the book for anyone who's interested but Specifically, what I'm thinking about here is when you there's a, there's always a transfer of fragility. This is one of the points that he makes: is that, for example, in a in a, a human body, in a, a certain sense, is is anti fragile. So you think about going to the gym, for example, uh, you're lifting weights, and at the cost of some temporary fragility of your muscles, you're going to be weaker in the the following hours and days from that workout at that cost, over the long term, your body becomes stronger. So you have this kind of trade of fragility from the long term to the short term. So if you'd never went to the gym, you would never have the soreness. You wouldn't have that short term pain. But the long over the long term, you're building this up. Isn't it like I w- it brought me back to what we were talking about a couple like minutes ago was this idea of weird and beautiful things being a paradox in the universe. And yeah. Literally, I don't. For y'all that uh, don't regularly lift weights, when you're lifting weights, you're actually tearing your muscle mm-hmm. on a micro and semi-macro level, yeah. and what your body's actually doing is injecting it with hormones, chemicals, and I, I'm not an expert in this, but it's actually building your body back up into something new. Right. And it's it's weird that in the like in a black swan event or in a workout, the beauty of or not the, the the perils of destruction or destroying your muscle or destroy like a black swan event that destroys the economy at the same time on the paradoxical side can be literally the most empowering and eye-opening thing Mm -hmm. that then propels a society or yourself to a transcendent new self or a new place yeah and i think that's i think that's cause for farther investigation not just into mundane things but also bigger back to the metaphysical things what we're talking about there's there's so many things oh i'll phrase it this way the stuff that we know in proportion to what we don't know is probably at you know 0.1 percent before the atom people thought scientists geniuses thought you know the cells as low as we can go or these uh you know the mitochondria is as low as we can go but there's more right. other systems make up these systems and you can go infinitely deep or you know infinitely up yeah allegedly yeah and it, it's it's it just blows my mind every time that we have it's it's i want to say especially in america but especially in america we have this idea that we know 
everything. Are we the guy that's sitting in uh, the biggest bank in the world that has a suit on and is worth five million? We think that he knows any more about the underlying state of reality than we do. Right. And what I with this advice, practical advice from this is you can literally do anything. Mm-hmm. You can be if you want to be that suit in the bank, you can go do that. He's he was or she was no smarter than you whenever they start it. And I think we we do it, especially in America, we project a lot. Like we think that, oh, that guy on TV is so much smarter than me or that guy on Instagram that has a thousand followers and puts out great content. He knows what he's doing. But we forget about the human and almost the metaphysical aspects of this where it's like the mental fight that you have to go, for example, for this podcast, the fight of wanting to do it and be excited, but then realizing your every word is going to be broadcasted to the world and people can take that without even knowing you and make an opinion about you, you know? So it really is this double-edged sword, but at the same time, it's so empowering. Right. And it's it's just so weird how everything, not everything, but a lot of things in the universe do this. And uh-huh. I'm infinitely curious to find new things that follow this, this pattern in a way that I've recognized in the markets emotionally and in life. Yeah. No, it's interesting you, you bring up that point of the podcast because I was that's exactly what I was thinking about. I was thinking about how uh, that this we can produce this podcast and edit it and it sounds a certain way when you hear it but you don't hear the time that we spent before we started trying to record the introduction, for example, or the false starts that we've had. So that's, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I want to take a chance to implore people here and honestly implore myself to come back when I listen to this podcast to be pumped. So I'll say this is go after it, like whatever it is, do it. Yeah. You learn vastly by, you know, having a plan and preparing, but, the asymmetric opportunity of involving your human experience is offers unreal returns. Yeah. The human experience gives you so many different layers of this perceived reality that other things can't. Yeah. And we like to dwindle the importance of the experience or the personal experience. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we can. I think that's what makes us human yeah no you're channeling to love here you're you're bringing up exactly the point that i wanted to make which is that uh that something like making this podcast is limited downside but potentially unlimited upside so this is one of the crucial components of an anti-fragile system is that you have exactly what you described this asymmetry of opportunity where you have known downsides but your upside can go as far optionality. as you can imagine yeah. optionality it's exactly yeah. his uh his term the, 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 the for me, the finance brain in me starts to think of a call option. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can lose the money I put up, but my return I can make on that call option is infinite because a stock yeah. can go to infinity, but it can only go to zero. Right. So there's always, and I, I implore people to dive deeper on this because I think this, this plays a part in every part of life that we like to personify the downsides, but usually the downsides are capped. Yeah. You know, the worst thing I can experience that you could think about is dying. Right. So it, it literally is capped, you yeah, know, yeah. but your upside is literally as wondrous or as fragile as you want to make it. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. it really is what you make it. And I know this can be confusing for people that are listening. It's like, well, you just said that, like, there's very little free will. But, you know, like everything, it's a paradox. And there's a lot of beauty in these paradoxes and finding your niches in this paradox, in these paradoxes can change your life. And yeah. 
it's inspiring and scary, but that cycle builds strength over time. Uh, starting a podcast isn't easy, but after the you know second or third episode, you feel better about doing it, and right. then you're and then you start worrying about other issues, mm-hmm. and then you you conquer that, and then it's on the next thing. Yeah. No, it's a very interesting way to think about things. Have you actually read Taleb? Actually, more than reading it, I have watched YouTube videos, ah. which you know can be good or bad, but it's a, yeah, it's no, a good way. Fantastic. I like taking in content via video. Yeah. But I've learned more, honestly, from you than anything. And I think with you, you have a good way of uh, making it really understand, easily understandable. Thank and you. I would, I would, I love that because on this podcast, like for the people that are going to listen, right. you're breaking it down into something they can understand and apply. And I think that's I think awesome. So. I appreciate that. Man. The, the reason I asked is I'm, I'm curious. So I don't have a finance background. I mm-hmm. have a math background, but I'm curious what you think about it because you do have a finance background. So I'm, I'm curious your broader view of his work. Oh, uh, like on, can you give me like a specific thing that you were so, thinking of of his work? So optionality, the okay. idea yeah. of black swans, randomness yeah. as a factor. Oh, there's the a markets. couple in there that I could go off of, but humans are fallible. Mm. And I think Taleb's uh, idea of the anti-fragile system is spot on is you could have and you know in finance everything can seem like it's moving swimmingly but it only takes one uh one rock in the pond to send a shockwave across the pond that disturbs disturbs mm-hmm. the whole pond mm-hmm. and sometimes those waves instead of a rock falling in it's a meteorite yeah and the meteorite explodes the whole lake yeah and black swans yeah and certain random events that aren't being planned for or at least aware can cause stuff like that. So I, I guess more than anything, like the solution I give is, and I implore for people in finance is to be massively aware of the financial, physical, and emotional uh, undertakings of everyday life. Cause it's so easy specifically for people in the finance industry to break things down into ones and zeros or dollars and cents. And like we've been talking about with these paradoxes, it's a black swan in and of itself is a paradox and these paradox paradox exists and will continue to exist. Yeah. But is trying to prepare for them paradoxical in itself because you can't <laughs> prepare for a, a black swan. Yeah. That's what makes it a black swan. Yeah. So there is an I a fundamental actual idea of finance is the S and P five hundred, which is the the index for the market. So quite, when people say the market, that's what they mean. The S and P five hundred or the market when you mathematically and statistically draw it out, like what is the path that it meanders through time? Right. Well, if you map it out and do statistical and mathematical tests, it's weird. You find that stock market returns and uh, since the 1920s are random with a drift. Right. So, you know, you could code that into an algorithm where it's you have the random, but the drift coefficient is, you know, positive or negative. And in this case with the markets, the drifts has been positive. Mm-hmm. But really, you cannot prove that the market is not uh, meandering through time mm-hmm. randomly with the drift because it is. Right. It, it's we can we can sit down and prove that. And I guess the bigger point is that the idea that you want that things can be random in life, and life is random. But I like I kind of like what the market did is make the drift positive Mm -hmm. you can construct stuff in a way there'll be negative drifts you know at times but holistically that drift is positive so over time people gain value system gains value and that's so deep in itself but yeah that's 
that's the kind of tie-in I see with the market is that the world is random and almost a series of black swan events in a smaller micro fashion. But there's always this positive drift, this underlying drift upwards. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because we all experience this on a daily basis. Like, why do stocks go up primarily, not down, you know, for companies right. that succeed? It's they're doing things. Like, right. we do things on a daily basis. We wake up. We do things. Right. We produce value. We go after something we're interested in. And that's that, in, in everyday life, that's the positive drift. So I implore people again to not take everything so, like, literally, because the world is more random and out of your control than you could have ever imagined. Right. No, that's a that's a. I think I totally agree with you. Um, there's so I'm I'm curious what you think about this. So, so his his response to this fundamental randomness, which I think is you, you've correctly identified. I think that's the core of his his work. That's the the thread that runs through all of it. His response to it is to say, I think similar to what you're saying, that you want to not try to shut out randomness or prevent randomness from occurring because as you, you've noted it's it's inevitable it's just a factor of the universe it seems his response to that is to say rather than trying to prevent black swans from happening from negative black swans to happen that you're opening yourself up to the, the possibility of positive black swans that the sort of diversifications like a mm-hmm. somewhat mundane insight or diversification but diversification in places where you have known downside and potentially unlimited upside. So the, the typical financial example of this is you look at an investing in a startup that has, you, you want to be smart about this, of course. Um, you want to invest in someone like Tuner that's, of course, yeah. going to be... But it is, quite a, a, a startup investment is mounds and leaps more risky right. for an investor than like a public market right, investment. Right, right, right. But that's the point is that there's a risk there, but it's a known risk. Because the mo- the minimum that you can get out of it is zero dollars. You can you can drop in whatever it is that you invest in it, and then you don't get it back, and that's the worst that can happen. But the best that could happen is that you invest in Facebook in two thousand four, and then your money increases yeah. quite a lot by en- enough to to blot out any negative calculations. You could be an idiot and be <laughs> anti fragile. Is is yeah. Nassim's pitch? Is that it's it's almost a it's almost a self help philosophy mm-hmm. in a sense because you can apply this to to lots and lots of different domains of life, not just finance, but for example, your dating life, right? So as long as you're not um, offensively uh, pushy, right? You want to be respectful, of course, but you you take opportunities where they come. You have known downside for the you most part. You could get though. hurt. You could, right. you know, be involved and something happen, and then you're sad. But you know these things going in that they're possibilities. Exactly. And at least in the very short term, right, in the, the beginning stages, the worst that can happen is that you're more or less right where you were before. Exactly. So you want to take these risks. Um, so I, I'm quite sympathetic with this this type of way, this way of thinking. I'm, I'm curious what you think about it. Yeah. Uh, I actually, you know, I could talk about this for days, but I, I really wanted to get, and we only have, you know, 10 minutes, 20 minutes left on this podcast. I want to get into something a little more on a personal level because we've, I think we've really done a good job of laying out these philosophies in a very uh, short term, like our short uh, natured way, but effectively to where people can pick up on what we're getting at and go do farther research. Mm -hmm. But I did want to ask you one question 
specifically that I've been thinking about a lot and knowing that you're going to be on the podcast is if you could make any one change right now in the psyche of the human. Mm -hmm. So the average, and you know, this is the average is, would you be more inclined to keep your ego as is because that's all you know, or are you inclined to take the, that risk of, you know, the downsides, are you willing to take the upsides of like trying to transcend and like, what is the thing that people can do? Are you asking on a categorical level to change all humans or my own psyche? So, yeah, you specifically. Oh boy. <laughs> oh man. Because that's... I think your answer will be relatable because we're all <laughs> just humans, you know, and this right, is a tough question. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, there's a, I, I'm, when I think about at first I thought you were asking if I could change everyone's mind how would I do that and I think the answer is I would not you can't yeah, I, you I don't, don't want to do that um, and then now that I'm thinking about my own mind there's just a long laundry list of things <laughs> that I think I would like to change but but I'm not sure that my answer would would change though I'm not sure that I would change anything because um, I'm constitutionally so I'm kind of conservative in the, the sense that I, I don't necessarily want to make changes without knowing what the effects would be or not, yeah. without having a lot of confidence. Yeah, because I would say that comes from your mathematical and analytical background where yeah. you're, you're not going to go in anything without evidence to support it in a way. Right. So, it, like, for example, the, the psyche, the human psyche. There's only so much evidence we have on that. There's only so much evidence. It's a complex system that I don't have a lot of confidence that I can. It's It's kind of. As you noted, it's it's sort of a paradox to think about within my own mind. Mm-hmm. Do I have the ability to assess my own mind in, in a complete way enough to make a change in it in that sense? And I don't think that I do. I think I'm I'm too much in it. Maybe my therapist could change something for me, but I, uh, I'm sure other people would have lists of things that they could change about me. But I, I think I would, you know, I think I would leave things more or less the way they are yeah Yeah, it's interesting that you say that and i kind of not that i was alluding to the answer but i had a feeling you would answer that and i'm tying this back into the idea of the ovarian lottery that me and aldo talked about in a previous podcast isn't it weird that like when offered this opportunity like do you want to transcend and what would you do it's weird how like as humans i would say the same thing we're like no like what what my past has made me and what my ego is made me and i like that right so i i just wonder is like it, also, like with the ovarian lottery, like nobody would want to redo their mother, and you know, right. in most co- most cases, <laughs> but it, it gets me thinking. It's like I talk about like transcending and being a better person or whatnot. All these like things trying to push myself is, uh-huh. but then why do we all as humans we look back and we're like, dang, that made us. But I wouldn't want right. to change that. And is it because it's in the past and we, we know we can't, or is it because we don't want to change as much in the future? Yeah, I think there's a combination of both. I think it's partly a kind of story that we tell ourselves is a so lots of people have lots of regrets, right? So mm-hmm. so there are things that I can think about that I've done just not good not good things that I would like to take back. Um but I also have the understanding that on a literal level, of course, I would be a different person mm-hmm. if I had made different choices. That's that's some, I think it's almost a mundane truism. Yeah. But you, you bring up an interesting point here, and I, I, you might have been thinking about this, the, the idea of like meditation as a, as a self-improvement practice. It's something that I do, and I, have it, I do it with the mind, with a, an intention of changing the way that I approach myself and the world around me. 
but I think of that as a different category than the kind of question that you asked me before. So I've actually, <laughs> I've actually mentioned this to my therapist before that if I had, if I could think back and just give myself mindfulness six months ago when I started my practice and just not to say that I have mindfulness mm-hmm. now, but if I could, could kind of snap my, that self into where I am now, which I think is, they've made quite a bit of progress. I'm certainly wouldn't consider myself enlightened, but I'm more mindful than I was then, certainly by, by quite a large degree. I don't think I would do that. I don't think I would just give myself the mindfulness because again, there's It'd be a, like unearned wisdom in a way. It's and, unearned, but I, I think it's unearned, but I don't think of that in the moral sense. I think of it in, in a practical sense. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, without having the training, the intentional training of meditation and, and a formal practice in particular, I think mindfulness is actually not that different from autism. This is a weird distinction, but, but follow me here. So like autism is, a, in a sense, being unable to filter out stimuli from the environment. There's mm-hmm. other aspects of it, of course. But it's quite overwhelming to to be. But I still encounter this sometimes. I'm, I don't have autism, but I still encounter this sometimes where I notice lots of stimuli at the same time, and it's quite overwhelming. It's quite frustrating. But but having had that experience of developing this pro this this faculty intentionally, it's a little bit easier to deal with. I think. Whereas if I had just been given this when I was very depressed and very anxious. Um, then I'm just aware of how depressed and anxious I am. And that's not a great place to be, yeah. I don't think. It's interesting that you bring that up because almost in my, I'm not almost, actually, in my personal life, I feel the same way. Is that, you know, and I'll lay out some background for everybody listening and for you as well, is that the way I am mentally is I, I'm, I try to be hyper aware, but I also really enjoy not enjoy, but I'm just, I guess I'm aware of what the stimulus, a lot of the stimuli coming in and I garner energy off of that. Mm-hmm. And I guess a, a example of this is like why I like the stock market. Mm-hmm. There's a number, it's moves, they go from one to zero. Yeah. There's something happening and that is a stimulus and that makes, like I enjoy some of those things in like a mathematical sense, the sports sense with stats. So I try not to let my you know, or like, for example, when I get really into something like this, the company, mm-hmm. you just, you know, you're just balls to the wall. You want to make everything happen. Yeah. But, you know, in the past three years, I had to really learn that you can't be your transcendent self if you're not having that mindfulness and assessing like those stimuli coming yeah. in. Because you can enjoy the stimuli coming in, like the stock market or like going to school and taking in information. Yeah. But if you're not aware of the stimuli, if you're, you're just taking it in because it's enjoyable and pleasurable yeah. and you're not aware of the situation, then it can lead to an, like an effect of detriment yeah. sometimes. Now, is this, is this related for, to flow states for you? Is that yeah, something you uh, think yeah, about here? Uh, yes, exactly. And you know, it's weird is I know you may have briefly heard, but like I played basketball pretty competitively growing up, you know, p- traveling around the country wow. and literally every major city I got to play in as a kid you know, against the top competition in the country. And it's weird, the connection between flow states and athletics, because an athlete, like, there's different ways to be mindful, just like there's different kinds of smart. Meditation is one mindfulness, but you can be mindful when you're just walking. Yeah. You can be mindful when you're playing sports. And I'll say, at least in my experience, the peak mindfulness I've, one of the peak mindfulness I've ever experienced is when you're in flow state in a basketball game and you can't miss a shot. 
yeah. the rim seems five times bigger. Yeah. Because you're in the zone. Yeah. You're in a flow state. And what is a flow state other than just a state of consciousness that you're putting upon yourself, that your ego is projecting and yourself is projecting onto the world? Yeah. So I try not to get too deep because, you know, we both have that ability to dive too deep into things <laughs> where it like almost leads to our detriment. Uh-huh. So I try to, instead of going down that, I try to implore and practice mindfulness yeah. in that area. And then it brings me back to a bird's eye view yeah. where I can look at things. And this hasn't only made me a better person and honestly a way more like probably a standard deviation of more openness Mm -hmm. but rather a better thinker i've been able to see stuff in the markets and connect it like the con i know this is out of touch a little bit but the thing we just had the conversation we had about bitcoin out there Uh that's something that i wouldn't have been able to put together about its influence on society Mm -hmm. and how income inequality could possibly be fixed yeah i wouldn't have been able to tie those ideas together if I hadn't practiced mindfulness, because I'm not able to connect the dots. Uh, I have this stimulus, but I'm not connecting the stimulus uh, into a certain pattern recognition that people can get behind. And these are some of the things I'm, I'm starting to realize about being mindful. It's, the, it's not the conscious effects. It's the subconscious effects. Stuff that you don't even notice. Yeah. How you're perceiving stimulus. Because guess what? That The sunlight that's coming in could seem slightly darker but maybe when you just meditate it and you're in a positive subconscious state of mind and you don't even realize it, maybe that light actually not just like emotionally feels brighter. Like you're like, oh, I feel better today. Yeah. Maybe it actually physically is lighter yeah. because yeah. of the subconscious experience. So, you know, that's a whole rabbit hole I could go down. But it's just so fascinating to me that this idea of flow states and the state of consciousness, because we know so little, yet we try to pretend we know so much. Mm. And I'm all about improvement. Yeah. So I want to find these new discoveries and be like, okay, what is my subconscious? What, how can I not like take something to make it better, but how can I make a practice or a habit to where I can really unleash the full like ability of my subconscious? And, you know, meditation is one of those yeah. great answers is like, if you meditate for six months straight, you're going to see noticeable difference. You may not be able to put your finger on it, but yeah, you, there yeah, will be yeah. differences. There's going to be a difference. Talk. Oh, I guess before we get out of here, like briefly, yeah. Explain the the like positive change that meditation had because you know people can get that uh, woo woo ness of uh-huh. meditation. Uh-huh. And me being me, I'm very anti woo woo. <laughs> so when I first heard of meditation, I was very right, right, right. skeptical yeah. at first. But as I practiced it and had help as well, it really turned into this, and now we're here. <laughs> and yeah, no, let me so. There's a danger, I think, that it, that comes with talking about meditation, aside from the woo-woo-ness, which is that uh, it can sometimes, you can sometimes confuse the map for the territory, mm-hmm. so I can talk about meditation. Yeah, what is meditation? How does one do it if they're trying to right. start? Yeah. Um, is it the same for everybody? I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can give anything, any better perspective on this than anyone else can Mm -hmm. i think there's a there's a few really good books out there i'm a book-minded person so there's a book called the mind illuminated that's that's been guiding my practice it's by oh gosh john yates i think is the name kula dasa um so it's fantastic it's very practical and and gives specific advice so very specific things of of how you do it and and there are 10 stages and you know that you've progressed from stage one to stage two and this happens and, and so forth. So that's a really great book. I don't have much to add in terms of 
benefits other than all of the things that you hear are more or less true. So the the more calmer, there's more space generally. I don't I don't feel that I've solved all of my problems by any stretch of the imagination, but my problems seem much more manageable. It, I think is the way to put it. I think to step away from the woo because it can be woo woo, and a lot of people yeah. on YouTube make it woo woo. But in a practical sense, if you implement this into a habit. Mm-hmm you'll start to see positives and negatives and like meditation, like anything is an evolution. It, you change based on you know, the results you get and yeah. you see what works and you change yeah. it and you see how it affects your life. And if you don't like it, you stop. And if you like it, you keep going. Yeah. So I think the bigger thing is really just keeping people's mind open and realizing that, yeah, meditation can be woo woo if you make it woo woo, but it can also be very effective if you're doing yeah. it in a, you know, humans have done this for tens of thousands of years. Right. There's something to it. Yeah. Read read a little bit of information and find what's best for you and just start. And if you don't like it, you can stop. But I, I personally have found that it's made me a better person and it allows me to attack the ideas I have in my head with more clarity. Yeah, I think that's that's really well said. I think if I could point to one concrete difference that I notice in myself, aside from the ambient stress reduction, anxiety reduction, depression reduction, and just general <laughs> executive function improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the ability to notice when I've my mind has been captured by something. When it's in the cloud. When it's in the cloud, or it's, when it's thinking about something that I would, let's say, not have freely chosen. Mm-hmm. I won't open that can of worms again, <laughs> but something that I, I would prefer not to be thinking about, yeah. I guess, um, that I can actually notice it sometimes not all the time but sometimes i can notice it and then redirect it to something else and that's for someone who's had chronic anxiety for basically my whole life that's pretty incredible i've never been able to do that before and that's uh, dramatically improved my yeah and it's great to hear that and for everybody that's not going to be able to see this is that you can see the difference I knew you two years ago, and there's a vivid difference between mm-hmm. then and now. And obviously, there's a lot of factors, but right. that's definitely one of them. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. And before, you know, we got to wrap this up. It's been super, super fun. I really, I, I think, would you love to come back on? I'd love to have yeah. you on here with maybe Cameron yeah, and absolutely. do like a three-person podcast and really come back to some of these issues because Cameron has really good insights on the psychology of that. So we could kind of defer to him on some of the biology and some of the psychological effects. And other than that, it's just, I I want you to leave the audience with one piece of advice, maybe something that you would have given to your younger younger self, but more than anything, I want it to be applicable. Okay. Um, hmm. The one piece of advice that I would give to my younger self, or just generally... Or both your younger self or like if you're thinking of just anybody in the audience but I think it's more personal when you do okay. your younger self yeah you can really get down in the weeds I, I think I've got a good one here give less advice uh, because you probably don't know what you're talking about facts <laughs> so yeah that's it that's give it. less advice that's the perfect way to end it watch out for that advice people we're out you got any last words will take it easy Rest easy, y'all. See you next time.